the lyrics of that song, Dust in the Wind, written by Carrie Livgren, are written by a man that was on a quest, a quest to find meaning and significance in life. And the lyrics of that song really are, are haunting lyrics. He confesses that our dreams, all we do, all that we are, is dust in the wind. Life is slipping away, and all our money won't another minute buy everything. Everything is dust in the wind. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, man, I'm just drifting through this place called this world, and I don't even know why I'm here, and I am looking for meaning, and I'm looking for happiness and significance, and I can't find it. I mean, this song could have easily been written by a guy named Solomon. In fact, one of the books in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, could have had the same title of that song, Dust in the Wind. Because that's what he concluded as he was chasing down life here on earth, life without God. He says this in the beginning of his book, verse 2 of the opening chapter, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And I'm not here this morning to to ferret out your feelings of insignificance. I'm going to assume that if there aren't hints of it or even an overwhelming feel of that this morning, we all have faced it or will face it or have faced it. What I want to know this morning is where do you go? What are you turning to right now to find meaning and significance in your life? Where is it? Is it in your work? Your accomplishments, that next promotion, your studies, your degrees? Is it in relationships? Is, is it in the stuff that money can buy and the stuff that this world would call success? Is it making the team or making the play or dating so-and-so or living in a certain neighborhood? And what is it that at its core gets you what you think is going to bring lasting significance and meaning and purpose in life. Maybe you saw the movie City Slicker. Billy Crystal is facing this midlife crisis. He's all of a sudden come to that point where he's looking at where he's been and it's not satisfied. He's wondering if that's what it's going to be out in the future. And he, he's really hating life and most specifically his job. And he's called in to talk to his kid's fourth grade class on career day about, you know, work and all this stuff. And so he's philosophizing to the kids and it goes like this. He says, kids, value this time in your life. This is a time in your life when you have choices. Man, it goes by so fast. You know, when you're a teenager, you think you can do anything and you do. Your 20s are a blur. In your 30s, you make a little money, raise a family, and wonder, what happened to my 20s? In your 40s, you grow a pot belly and another chin. The music starts to get loud, and one of your old girlfriends becomes a grandmother. In your 50s, you have minor surgery, and they call it a procedure. In your 60s, you have major surgery, and the music is still loud, but it doesn't matter because you can no longer hear it. In your 70s, you and your wife moved to Florida. You have 
uh, what is it? You have dinner at 2 in the afternoon, lunch at 10 in the morning, and breakfast the night before. <laughs> you spend most of your time wandering around the malls looking for the latest, greatest, low-fat yogurt and muttering to each other, how come the kids don't call? In your 80s, you have a major stroke and end up babbling to a nurse whom your wife can't stand and whom you end up calling mama. Well, that's from the sublime to the ridiculous, to be sure. But whether it's Livgren, whether it's Solomon, the truth is, in us, there's a quest. There is a longing to have significance and meaning and purpose in life. That was Solomon's quest. And the author of Ecclesiastes makes it clear that that, te- that quest intensifies when you smack up to that which you cannot deny, and that is that we're all going to die. He says, one day, like a fish caught in a net, we'll be snared by death. So my take on the book of Ecclesiastes, it's written by Solomon. It's written by Solomon at the end of his life, having tried to chase down happiness and significance and purpose through all these things in life and and, and telling us, you know what? It doesn't deliver. He's one of the rare guys who can say, I've had it all. It's not just that I tried to get it. I actually had it in my hands. I was king, the wisest man who ever lived. I had a harem. I had everything that I ever wanted in life, but I can tell you it didn't cure me of my longings for significance but I found it. And I want to tell you where you can find it. But the interesting way that he goes about it is by telling us all the places we won't find it. Until the very end, and little glimpses looking forward to the end, but until the very end where he says, this is where you find it, this is where you find it. And what he says is, look, life here under the sun. That's the common phrase you read throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun, life lived without God will always let you down. It'll always leave you with a sense of, man, I think there's got to be something more here. And so it's important to remember right away, insignificance is the curse that comes when we live life without God. That's one of the things he's just going to tell us. Insignificance is the curse that comes when we live life apart from God. He talks about these different things that he chased down, and it's like they're, they're the mirages that are around us, the mirage of significance. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 1, and we'll look at these different mirages that he says are out there. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3 through 9, page 472. And when we think about mirage, it's really tied into Solomon's word, Meaningless. He uses that word 38 times. It's the word that means vapor. It's the word that means a breath. It's it's here and it's gone. You can't quite get your hands on it. It's elusive. It's worthless. It's it's vanity. And and he goes and he says this in the very opening words of his book. Verse 3, What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, 
More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So he says, there's a bunch of mirages out there. They look like the real thing. They look like they're going to refresh us and bring this sense of significance and happiness and joy into our lives. But they're just a mirage, he says. And he lists out some of these mirages. There's the mirage of work. Do you see it there in verse 3? What does man gain or profit by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? You spend your life working your tail off, and then so often at the end of it all, we look back, and all we have is regrets. And maybe with the regrets, there are a few things that we say, well, here's what I can say I was able to accomplish. And then we think of it in the long term and say, but how is that? How has it made this place a better place? And what about the things that I've worked so hard for when I pass them on to, to my children and my grandchildren? Is it possible that they could just squander off all that I've worked hard for? There's a guy named Leonard Wolf, husband of Virginia Wolf, author, civil servant, pretty high-powered guy in the early 1900s in, in England. He writes this. This is classic. I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be the, exactly the same as if I'd played ping-pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Life is meaningless. Work is meaningless, he says. What does it do? And the inevitable is that as hard as we work, it'll never change the reality of verse 4, that a generation will come and a generation will go. It doesn't matter what we've done, what we've achieved, we're all going to die. It's as certain as verse 5, the rotation of the sun, verse 6, the path of the wind, verse 7, the cycle of water. It's inevitable. Then there's the mirage of wisdom. The mirage of wisdom. Before we get to wisdom, I, I just got to believe. Somebody here, you're, you're just chasing it down, thinking, I, I think this career thing's going to deliver. And I, I have a feeling here, men, we're way more vulnerable to this mirage of, of work. I mean, so much of who we are is in what we do. That's like one of our first questions. What do you do? Why it's such a crisis when we're in transition between jobs? So much a part of our identity. And he's saying, it's, it's not, it's not going to be found in that. It can't be found in that. It's got to be something more. And then he goes to wisdom. The wisest man who ever lived. He starts talking about wisdom. Look at it in verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. 
What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Wisdom, he says, is elusive. Wisdom is something that I had. Wisdom is something that I was chasing down. And at the end of the day, here's what I can tell you. The more I had, the heavier my heart became. My sorrow increased as I I learned about the realities of life under the sun and this world. And I realized that at the core of it, I could never learn enough. And the learning that I had could never change what was twisted. I could never straighten it out with the wisdom that I had. I I could never fill the emptiness that was lacking in this world through my wisdom and figuring it out. It always led me to this place of sorrow and despair. Even that wise man, like the fool, he'll say later in chapter 2, will die one and the same. And then there's a mirage of, of pleasure, of accomplishments and money he chases it down in chapter 2. Look at 2, 1 through 11. I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. He talks about pleasure, and this man had a budget to pursue pleasure like nobody else. And he's chased it all down. He's got a harem, the scriptures tell us, of 700 wives and 300 concubines. He has it all. And he says, I chased pleasure down. And it didn't deliver. And all you have to do is think about the sexual addictions that ravage lives and marriages and homes and realize they're addictions. The very fact that they're addictions let us know they do not satisfy, and they never bring us to this place of significance and meaning. It wasn't in pleasures, he said. It wasn't in sex. It wasn't in his accomplishments, the palaces that he built, the houses 
the temple, the parks, the gardens, all these lavish things that were part of his kingdom. When the queen of Sheba came in and her jaw just dropped and she said, I've never seen anything like this before. See, those accomplishments won't do it either. And if you don't believe Solomon, well, maybe you'll believe a guy who maybe could be the poster child for success in our day. I mean, he's a guy who could as easily be on the cover of Rolling Stones as he could Sports Illustrated. He could be on the cover of GQ and Fortune magazine. Tom Brady. This guy, at the age of 30, has won three Super Bowls. Arguably one of the best to ever play his position. I'm sure a little behind Favre. I understand that. (laughs) This guy's unbelievable. So he does an interview this year on 60 Minutes. And what he says to Steve Croft, who's interviewing him, is despite the, the fame and the success and the accomplishments... I feel like there's something missing, something lacking in my life. And he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's all about. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be all it's cracked up to be. You hear that? This isn't, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. So Croft pressed Brady as to what the right answer was. Brady said, what's the answer? Oh, I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being quarterback on this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. He's got it all, but he knows he doesn't. He knows there's something missing. They're missing pieces. Missing pieces. What did Livgren say in his song, Dust in the Wind? All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. We won't acknowledge it. The mirage of these accomplishments. Then there's the mirage of money. They say in Solomon's day, It was such an opulent kingdom that he had so much gold that that silver was as common as rocks in Jerusalem. And he says in chapter 5, verse 10, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Then turn down to verse 15 of that same chapter 5. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hands. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain? Since he toils for the wind, all his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. He says it's not not in money. It's not in the stuff money can buy. Believe me, I had it all. I had an unlimited budget. I had a Bill Gates kind of account. Speaking of Bill Gates, think about it. Guy's worth $59 billion. You know what he's leaving, each of his three kids? Anybody know? $10 million. You, we, we say, that's a, that's, a lot. that's a lot. That's nothing. He's got $59 billion. Why is he leaving his kids $10 million? Well, you don't have to guess. I'll tell you why. Because I don't want to leave that kind of a burden on my kids. And we're thinking, oh man, I don't need billions. 
I don't even need millions. I, I, just, need, I just need like a little bit more. Can you just get me, get me beyond cola this year. Could you get me like 7 or 8%? I think then, then I'll be okay. He says, no, you won't. It never satisfies. If you're trying to chase down money apart from God. It will never, ever do what you're hoping it's going to do. It's not money. All your money, Livgren writes in the song, all your money won't another minute buy. Speaking of not another minute buy, that's the whole thing that troubles Solomon as he's been trying to search it all out. Is there something in life that's not a mirage and it's death? It's the great equalizer. He keeps bumping into it. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says this, There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come, that's us, will not be remembered by those who follow. It's going to be a short period of time when nobody even remembers your name. You don't believe me? You've got eight grandparents, eight great-grandparents. Write down their names. These are your grandparents. I'm not asking you to tell me where they lived. I'm not asking you to tell me about their kids or what they did. Just give me their names. Your great-grandparents. I've got a great-grandfather who died 26 years before I was born. I didn't know anything about him until I asked my dad this week about some of my great-grandparents. I found out he was an evangelist. He said, well, he, he was a farmer. I said, yeah? Yeah, he had three cows, my dad said. He was a farmer. It's a little country. He said, but what he really did is he, he traveled, told people about Jesus. I, I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. This guy died 26 years before I was born. He says, you're not even going to be remembered. All your accomplishments won't be remembered. He says, the wise man won't be remembered. You know who the first guy is that invented the car you drove? It's not Henry Ford. I'll tell you who it is. Carl Friedrich Benz. You know that name, Benz, as in Mercedes Benz? You didn't know, though, did you? You look at that great Capitol building that just dominates our skyline, and it's the, it's the pinnacle, the jewel of our city. Do you know who designed that? Anybody? See, I've already forgot his name. I'm going to go back to my notes and look at it again. My land's George B. Post. But we don't know. The guy who designed the New York Stock Exchange. We don't even remember. Someone says, don't, don't kid yourself into thinking you're going to find significance in these things. And death is the great equalizer. It is not a mirage. We won't be remembered. Our wisdom won't be remembered. Our accomplishments won't be remembered. It is our destiny. It's the destiny of every man. Chapter 9, verse 2. Look at it. All share a common destiny. Who's all? The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. We're all going to die. It's inevitable. It is our destiny. And so the question is solemn. If insignificance is the curse of living life under the sun without God, then what is the cure? What is the cure? Turn to the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. He gives us his answer. 
Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. First, this word about coming judgment over every deed. What, what, what you may be thinking is, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There is no meaning. And he reminds us, oh yeah, there is. Everything matters. Everything you do matters. Because everything you do, out in the open or hidden, your attitudes, your actions, you will stand before Almighty God and give account for that. There is meaning in life because everything we do does matter. And the meaning comes from this little phrase, fear God. And when you see the word fear God, the first time you run it, it says, well, what are you saying? I'm supposed to be afraid of God? It's not just talking about being afraid of God. In fact, that word and that phrase, fear God, speaks of a relationship with God, a relationship that's categorized by a person who knows God, and here's what he knows about God, that he's a great, just, holy, loving God, and then rightly understanding him for who he is means that we respond to him in reverence, in fear, in awe, in worship. We also respond to him in love, in affection, in humble obedience. We're keeping his commands, he says, with hearts that are filled with joy. Fearing God is seeing God for who he is and responding in reverent, affectionate, humble obedience that's full of joy. It's this relationship with God, he says, that transforms life from being insignificant, your life, to being significant. And that relationship comes through the cross, through the cross of Christ that brings us into this relationship. Remember what we've been saying. Our nagging guilt, our sin separates us from God. We're on one side of this chasm. The chasm that separates separates us from Almighty Holy God is our own dishonoring acts and attitudes. We haven't loved God with all of our hearts. We haven't loved our neighbor as we ought But Christ died on the cross. He took on the penalty of our sins. He bore our sins to bring us to God. We can cross over from death to life, John says in chapter 5, 24, through Christ. And it's the cross that changes the insignificance of our life to bringing significance and purpose and fullness to all of life. And so Solomon says, you're chasing through all these mirages, seeking desperately to find it. But guess what? Until you find God, you'll never find it because it's God who brings significance into your life and then through your life to every place that you go. Your job, your work, your accomplishments, sex, whatever it is, he brings significance to those things. And so the cure is we go to the cross. So we're talking about the transforming power of the cross. You go to the cross and when you look at the cross, what do you see? I want you to see at the cross that God loves you. That he loves you, that he knows you by name. He knew you before you were ever born and he has a great plan for you that is not different from his plan that's being worked out in this world. He loves you and he demonstrated his love for you by allowing his one and only son to be nailed to that cross. This one who set us free on the cross and forgives us on the cross. This one who not just saves us from all that we've done that has dishonored God, but this one who saves us to Christ, to the Father, into a relationship with him. And we look at the cross and we realize it was 
the cross of Christ that he's called us to carry, that there is meaning and purpose in life as we follow him. He says we are his workmanship. We're his masterpiece. I don't know if you believe that about yourself. But if you are in Christ, the scriptures say, Ephesians 2.10, you are his masterpiece in Christ. Creating Christ Jesus to do something. There's purpose for you to do, to do the good works that God promised in advance for you to do. He's, He's prepared these things for you to do. We are instruments of God to join him in this world of pointing people to the one and the only one who can satisfy. Solomon said this, life under the sun is meaningless. It's a vapor. It's worthless. Life without God is meaningless. But Solomon would tell us, life under God's sun, fearing God, having that relationship through Christ, that life, Living in that relationship brings meaning and purpose and significance. And the deal is that you and I live in a world that continues to call out to us. There continues to be these riptides that that take us out to these pools that that promise so much, but we get out there, we find out it's a mirage. It It doesn't deliver. And so we need to be people who go to the cross and cling to the cross and live under the shadow of the cross and don't let the stuff of life eclipse the cross. Understanding that when we have this new relationship with God, all of a sudden, the things like that job that you say right now, what in the world could this do that would be good for anything? God says, do it unto me. Do your work unto me. And to take the plans that I have for you to further my purposes in this world of helping people see that I'm the one and the only one where they can find meaning and purpose and significance. You live that out and you realize that this job is not what you think it's been. It's all about you walking in my love and my purposes and my compassion and my mercies right there. And that's true for your marriage. That's true for your family relationships. That's true for relationships you have with, with all kinds of people. It's, it's true for every area in your life right now that you might go, I just think that's a waste. No, it's not. God can bring significance as you allow him to transform your life and transform your perspective of what you're to be doing in those spheres of your life. What a beautiful thing that Jesus would give us the table that he'd give us the bread and the wine, the cup, that we would never forget his death, that we would never forget the centrality of where everything changes, where everything changes. And so as we take the bread and the cup today, may it be with a profound understanding that this is the cure. This is the cure for what ails us. This is the cure for those feelings that we have of being just dust in the wind. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bless you for being a God, a God of love, a God of grace, and a God who's wound up this world in such a way that you've placed eternity in our hearts and you won't let us 
find ultimate meaning and satisfaction and significance in things apart from you. Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be anybody who's getting satisfied in the dissatisfying things of this life and just saying, that's just how it's always going to be. I pray that their dissatisfaction would move them to the cross of Christ. That you'd move them from death to life, from despair to hope, from guilt to freedom, from the sense of, I'm loved and I have a purpose in this world to love you and to serve you and point others to you. Lord, do that work in our hearts this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.